Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. I wonder if you've ever done something that you truly regretted. Something that you have found hard to shake off after it happened. Words you'd wished you could take back. A relationship you wish you could piece back together. Lent is a good time for us to give some thought to such things, a time of self-examination, of exploring what those wrong turns along the road have left you with. Not that you might want to spend these 40 days wallowing, but that you might name that which still binds you, holds you back, in hopes of being released from it. The story of the prodigal son is about many things. The relationship between fathers and sons, the expectations of family and tradition, the sense of place and where it is we say we most belong. Today I'd like to invite us to see another element of the story, the presence and power of shame. One of the challenges we face in reading the Bible is that certain stories become so familiar, we find it hard to see them as they might have been seen in their first light. Our natural inclination in the story of the prodigal son is to see it as a homecoming story. And it is. It's a wonderful celebration of grace, of the gratuitous love, the spendthrift glory that we find when one who is lost comes home. It's easy, therefore, to see the events that lead up to that return home as merely the necessary plot devices of the inevitable end if this is a story about the God we know in Jesus. We know these stories end well, ultimately, because all of these stories have God as their source and their end point. We know that after the fall comes the embrace. Yet if we dwell with the first part of the story, we're gifted of a vision of what it might have felt like before that return, what it feels like to us and in us before our return, the stuckness of not yet having found the way back. It's here, I believe, that we see the dominance of shame in creating the inertia that leaves the son stuck with the pigs and the father not yet in search of his lost child. The lens through which our ancient forebears first heard this story was profoundly colored by a culture of honor and shame. Through the eyes of the ancient Near East society, the younger son's actions transgress multiple markers of honor. Not only does he leave his homeland prematurely before his time and so fails to honor his father and mother 
as the covenant of the law requires him to do, he squanders the value of his ancestral land. Not only a gift of family, but a gift from God. In leaving his homeland, he settles among Gentiles with the story emphasizing practices considered unclean to the Jewish imagination, prostitution and pig rearing. Essentially, this young man unmoors himself from all that gives him identity, family, land, and religion. And in doing so, we might expect that he brings shame upon his family, a story they don't want to tell out in the marketplace, and shame upon himself. Shame drives much of the parable's forward movement. The younger son's premature departure, surely leaving, of course, his family in shame. And the son facing himself, dwelling with unclean animals and his loss of who he is. Of course, the older son cannot see the return of his brother, anything other than the betrayal of the honor and shame system he has been brought up into. He cannot place his feet literally in that part of celebration. Part of the operation of shame and part of its power is that it expects judgment. And that certainly would have been the expectation of those first hearers, conditioned within the honor-shame cultural codes of the time. Judgment would have been expected to have met the son on his return. It's clearly the working assumption of the younger son that his shaming of the family disallows him, disinherits him, the re-entry as a son that he had once been. Shame has led to him losing himself, and now he can only expect to come back less than he was before. And for those first hearers of the story, The only recourse that the father has left, perhaps in their minds, is for the father to disown the son on his return. For him to say, you are no son of mine. For set within that ancient world, bounded by honor and tradition, shame changes everything. I wonder if any of that Description of an ancient people sounds familiar. Whether we care to admit it or not, shame can be an immensely powerful part of our own stories. How many of us here today have a story to tell that is also weighed down by shame? A story of things we have done or failed to do, relationships we couldn't mend, We can feel shame for our actions. We can feel shame about our our very bodies. We can feel shame not only for ourselves, but for others. And we get stuck. And I wonder how much it is true that our inability to have a gracious conversation about race in America is because we are stuck with our shame that it holds us and binds us in place and makes us reactionary, quick to judge, and so hard to receive the insights of others. 
my own family had to learn to live with the shame of mental illness. I want to say categorically that there is nothing whatsoever shameful about being mentally ill. But the social experience of living with or having a family member suffer mental illness can be profoundly shame-inducing. Growing up for the longest time, the mental illness in my own family was akin to a secret we never spoke of outside of the house. And if we did, it was done so either in whispers or as the recipients of other people's pity or kindness. As a child, I can vividly remember lying when someone asked me how my mother was because I felt so ashamed. Shame got us all stuck. And it was years until I could articulate the damage that shame had done. I wonder what weight of shame you have been carrying with you. Shame is often where we get stuck, yet it is not where we belong. We belong on the return leg of the journey on our way home, embraced by our God who draws us in. What you'll notice about the story is the son's intention to name that which has brought them shame. He is ready to confront his past and face the consequences. He is ready to tell his truth in the hope that he might be heard. Yet the wonderful element of the story of the prodigal son is the spendthrift forgiveness of the father. The father seemingly has no interest in the son's confession. If this is an allegory for God the Father, then we've been getting our theology wrong for just a couple of millennia. All the Father sees is the return. I've often imagined the Father in the story running, panting down the road, urging every fiber of his being to be reunited with his Son. And I've no doubt that the almost sheer abandon of the father's embrace was an immense shock to those who first heard this story. And if we're honest about it, the prospect of our own complete and unconditional acceptance by God is a shock to us too when we let that truth sink into our being. To hear, to really hear, that we are utterly and unreservedly loved of God, accepted without condition, is not a word that life typically speaks to us. Which is why this story in so many ways lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. For there is nothing more important than we can say of God than the good news that says we are welcome home. For it is when we can realize that we are loved and received that we can finally let down our guard enough to hear what God has to say to us. It is when we can surrender ourselves into the arms of God's loving embrace that we can know how deeply God delights in us. And it is only from that place of knowing God's delight in us, that we will be set free to delight 
in the world. Whatever memories of hurt and failure, of being far off from the road you had hoped to travel on that you might carry today, I pray that these days of Lent might give you the freedom to name that which you carry and then lay those burdens down where they belong. For while we were still far off, God met us in his Son and brought us home. Deep blessings to you as you find your way there.